0: Sometimes I can get a little bit impatient when I go to museums or exhibitions. Um, It's not like I don't like being there. I really like that sort of stuff. But um, when I'm there, I start with lots of good intentions. Um, I start to look at the placards, and it's a placard with lots of writing on it. And uh, I begin reading the first couple of sentences, but then I can't help myself but look down the line and see the amount of other placards that there are to read. And no matter what my good intentions might be, I think, oh, I can't read all of this stuff, you know, and I get bored, and I end up, nine times out of ten, in all the museums and exhibitions I end up going to, I just look at the pictures, or I just whiz through the exhibition, and even better when there's interactive buttons and little flaps you can pick up and stuff like that, but as I whiz through, as I'm going through the the exhibition, I can spot more patient people, and they're standing, they're looking and taking the time and reading the facts that are on the walls, now, It's not rocket science to work out who will be better informed at the end of that. Now, when we read a passage like Acts 16, verses uh, 16 to 34 in the Bible, it's a, a passage that we can be tempted to just whiz through and get to all the interesting bits, but maybe miss out some of the detail. But it's important to slow down and really look at what is going on in some of these details, because we might end up finding some things that we have never noticed before. So in this passage, uh, we discover that the apostles have arrived in Philippi and things have been going really well. Um, They have made a convert of Lydia, um, who's the first European convert, and as well as some other people as well. And it's all looking really good until we read the rest of this chapter where things starting to get, well, a bit ugly. They meet a slave woman, not that I'm saying she's ugly, but, you know, they meet a slave woman who can predict the future. Now, I was wondering, you know, she must have been a right pain when it came to telling her a joke. Can you imagine? You know, have you heard the one about the Englishman? She's already laughing already. She's got the punchline. She can tell the future. But anyway, what is it that this woman seems to be saying? Well, if you have a look in verse 17, she seems to be praising God. She's saying uh, that God is the most high. And you might ask, well, what's so bad about that? Isn't that quite good? (laughs) Like, isn't that a bit of free publicity for the apostles? Well, there's actually a real problem here. Um, for a start, the Bible specifically forbids divination like this. He still forbids it today. He makes it quite clear, you know, reading horoscopes and putting your trust in, that sort of fortune-telling type vibe is actually something that is not for us Christians to be involved with. But there's actually something else going on which I find even more interesting than this. And it's this fact that the reason why she could tell the future was that she had a spirit in her. And no, it's not vodka, it's something else. Now, the Greek term here means literally, she has a Python spirit. Now the word goes back to the legend of Apollo killing the Python dragon, at Delphi. So you can imagine, if you can imagine in your head, a fire-breathing, scary Python dragon if you got that in your head, well, if that's in your head, then this is what the Gentile readers, the non-Jewish readers, would have thought of when they read about this spirit that this woman had. So this woman was in a bad way. Now it's a mystery why Paul lets this thing go on for so long. Like if you look in verse eighteen, um, it says it goes on for many days. But in the end, Paul's just had enough, and he commands the spirit to come out of her in verse eighteen. Now nowadays we absolutely love things to be instant, you know, instant coffee instant messaging, instant cameras, well if you look at this clearly this is instant miracle. He prays and at that moment the spirit, this python spirit leaves her and instantly her ability to uh, predict the future stops. I really think it's a cool place, a cool, cool image really the this scary python spirit that has been such a, such a frightening and oppressive image is instantly freaked out and runs away as soon as they hear the name Jesus. Now if you knew someone who'd been enslaved by the spirit of the python, I uh, reckon you'd be pleased for her being set free from that. But her owners in this passage are not pleased at all. In fact, they are absolutely livid. And what's the reason? Well, it's the reason by behind many reasons. Uh, sorry, many um, instances where people get angry and frustrated and fall out one on, with one another. It's all about cold hard cash. Uh, this woman had been making a mint for them by telling the future, but now that the python spirit had been cast out, well that money's going to dry up and they are not happy about this woman's freed. You know, whenever people get set free, there are often others who wish they'd stayed in shackles. You know, 200 years ago uh, when slavery was abolished, you can't tell me that everyone was celebrating then. You know, for some it was bad business to lose the slaves. When I became a Christian, personally, I found that, um, you know, I, really what I feel is real true freedom I found in my life for the first time. But there were some who wished I would go back to the way I was, you know. Oh, I wish you, was, I wish you weren't a Christian, you know. I wish you were the old you, even though I was much better off being a Christian. You know, when Jesus sets someone free, some people will wish they were still in shackles. And so you have this situation where these owners who are imprisoned by greed... Um, They take Paul and Silas off to the public square. And this is where things actually get pretty nasty. You know, it is so easy to gloss over some of the persecution that the apostles face. And, you you know, you think, oh, yeah, it's just all part of the job. And we can, well, we can become like desensitized to it, you know, in the same way as uh, I think it's actually easy. Now, when you're watching telly and um, you see a, a report of starving children in Africa, it's actually not that difficult to turn the channel in the middle of that. Now I remember a time when when that came on the TV, I wasn't I was shocked. Well, you get desensitized. But just look at what happens in this scene if you can really look closely. The slave owners start to stoke up racial hatred. If you look in verse twenty, um, uh, they say these Jews and us Romans. You know, I had someone say recently that. Um, Human beings are really good at putting people into boxes, but we can't help but put one box above the other. And that is exactly what's happening here. The Romans are looking down on these Jews. Now, this charge that they're coming up with, this uh, this idea of bringing up unlawful practices, it's not even, well, it's not even backed up by anything, really. But the crowds believe it. Why? Well, because of racism, prejudice, because they expect that of Jews. That's the sort of thing a Jew would do, they would probably think. Little did they realize that Paul and Silas are actually uh, Jewish Romans. And if they'd said that, things would have been all right. You know, they would have got let off with this, because you find that out later. But I don't know why they don't. Anyway, look at verse 22. Um, The crowd starts joining in. And they're most likely hurling racial insults and taunts. And this is just my imagination here, right? But in my mind's eye, I can almost see that python spirit that has been cast out of this woman... Now, slithering around in the crowd, you know, stoking them up and stirring them up to be racially prejudiced against Paul and Silas. And then they get stripped, which is completely humiliating. It's got echoes of uh, what happened to Jesus, and they're also beaten. But have a look in verse 23. Luke qualifies this by saying they were severely fl- flogged. You know, this isn't just a clip round the ear. This is GBH, and it's all... In public. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine that you got dragged from here and bundled into a van right now and driven up to the marketplace in a busy city or a town, and you and your closest friend were ripped out, had your clothes ripped off, and then you started getting beaten within an inch of your life, while there was crowds of people shouting racial taunts at you. This is an absolutely horrific situation. Now, the authorities obviously uh, want to make an example of Paul and Silas, so they throw them in prison. And this, they throw them in a prison with a jailer, especially to look after them or to guard them. If you look in verse 24, they get put in the inner cell, which would have been, you know, the highest security cell, the maximum security stock here This is the place they would have put the A-team if um, they ever caught them. And their feet gets put in stocks. Now, I don't know if you've ever put your feet in stocks before. I have, actually. Um in you know like in museums or like exhibitions or theme parks when they have the the stocks there that you can put your feet in and have a little bit of a picture taken well proper stocks were notoriously uncomfortable you know they'd have to be tight enough so you couldn't slip your feet out and i really doubt that they're going to have a range of sizes do you really think that happened you know when paul and silas turned up the jailer says oh paul yeah you look you look like a size 10 hmm yeah i'll just get your stocks no it was probably small for all. Impossible to move around, impossible to really f- move freely and sleep, so it's no wonder that we find them awake at midnight. But it's a bit more pres- surprising to see what they're doing at midnight. What are they doing? They're singing and they're praying. And the other prisoners are listening. I wonder if that was a the sound they heard much in that place, you know, singing, sweet singing, I doubt it. It reminds me of their film, The Shawshank Redemption, where the main character uh, commandeers the prison tannoy system and plays some classical music over the uh, speakers in the yard or some opera music or something like that. And, and the prisoners just sort of stop and they're transfixed with this beautiful music. But of course, this serenity didn't last very long. There's an earthquake and it's not just a tremor. Have a look in verse 26. It's a violent earthquake. And everything's shaking so violently that all the doors open and everyone's chains come loose and have a look notice it says all the doors and everyone's chains you know this is like laying the red carpet out for a massive escape and of course that's exactly what the jailer thinks he comes running out wouldn't you think this and think oh no everyone's gone i've failed what a rubbish jailer i am He's probably been shaken out of bed, I suppose, by the quake when he runs down to, to see what's happened. And because he assumes that um, everyone's escaped and he goes to he goes to realize that he's failed, well, he goes to kill himself and he goes to fall on his sword. Now, this was a pretty common response. You might think, man, this guy's taking his job a bit seriously. But actually, um, just in chapter 12 of Acts, in verse 19, Peter escapes from prison miraculously and herod has the guards killed who let them let them go but there's something about this scene another detail that i really want you to notice not to rush through it you know it's it's really dark like this is midnight there's no electric lights here Um, the guards going to kill himself before he calls for the lights to be lit you got that and paul and silas are still in their cell and the jailer is still outside of the prison door So when you think about it, the images of the jailer in the darkness thinking everyone's, you know, gone gone and he's going to fall on his sword until a voice suddenly comes to him through the night saying, don't harm yourself. We're all here. That's what Paul says. But the question is, of course, how did Paul know the jailer was going to kill himself? Because it's too dark to see. Probably Paul's in the inner cell. Remember, you know, no windows or anything like that. My point is, this could have well been a, like a divine revelation. Who knows? But either way, those words of Paul change everything. You know, sometimes, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's in the darkness of our guilt and the, the realization of our failures, like this jailer is experiencing now, that we hear a voice saying, you know, things don't have to be this way. Things can change. So, the jailer calls for lights, and something absolutely incredible happens. He he rushes in and he falls trembling before Paul and Silas. And I don't know if this is out of reverence or, or thanks uh, that they didn't run off or fear, I don't know. But whatever the reason is, th- this is absolutely unheard of, right? I mean, the jailer kneeling before the prisoner... Um, You know, I was in Wandsworth Prison on Wednesday, um, we were walking around visiting um, the chaplaincy there and seeing the different things that go on, and I'll be honest with you, right? at no point did I see one of the prisoners kneeling before the jailers. And this this situation carries on for a a bit of a tense moment, an exciting moment, because if you notice in 29 and, and 30, it's not until he brings them out of the cell that he actually says anything, the jailer I mean. So the image is like of the jailer kneeling with Paul and Silas just sort of looking at each other going, uh, what's going on? Have you seen uh, the jailer is on his knees? What's this all about? But when they're out of the cell, he asks an amazing question. Uh, The jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Maybe, well, I guess he'd heard the possessed spirit girl speaking um, because she was shouting out, remember, you know, these are the men who know how to be, uh, know the way to be saved or maybe he'd heard them praying or, or singing. I mean, the idea meant nothing to him back then, whether he heard them singing or he heard it from the possessed girl. But now in the dead of night, this idea about being saved means everything to him. Now, this is a common pattern. Like many people ignore the message of Jesus at first, thinking, oh, it's not for them. But then it becomes relevant later. I mean, I heard the the gospel loads when I was growing up. I mean, there was people at school telling me about Jesus and all this sort of stuff, and I just thought it was like, like, what was the point? You know, it was like just completely irrelevant, boring, and not interesting. But then there can come a time when circumstances can create a moment where, you know, what seems irrelevant, or at least used to be irrelevant, becomes the most relevant thing in the world. And this is what happens with the jailer. Suddenly. The key question for him is, what must I do to be saved? But the question, in a way, is not the right question. Not completely, because he's he's asking, what can I do to be saved? But actually, there's nothing you could do. It's already been done. Like religion, in many ways, you know, religion is spelt D-O, do. And Christianity is spelt D-O-N-E, done. It's about what Jesus has already done. And Paul says, look... Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's not so much based on what we do for God. It's on what God has already done for us on the cross. And all he had to do was believe. I suppose you could say that's something to do. But, you know, it's not like this idea that we have to strive to make God accept us. And his response is is cool. He he believes and so does the rest of his family and the household. And um, in verse 33, he washes them. He washes uh, The jailer washes Paul and Silas and cleanses their wounds, and then he's baptized by them. Now, this is such an exchange going on here. I mean, think about it. These are hands that had thrown Paul into a darkened hole hours before. They're now cleaning his wounds. And then the other way around, like the prisoners who once seemed like the biggest threat in Philippi are now baptizing the jailer and his family. I mean, would you be happy? I mean, imagine the jailer's there. He gets told, right, these two people are proper dodgy, right? Watch out for them. Put them in the inner cell. And then hours later, the jailer is saying, oh, there's my wife. Yes, you can hold on to her and you can take her and put her head under the water and baptize her and keep her head under the water just for a little while. You (laughs) You can see, obviously, that there's been a revolution in the mind of this jailer with regards to these prisoners. And this is an absolutely amazing moment in the history of God's people. And we have got to ask ourselves the question, well, what, what, what has it got to say to us? Well, one of the things I'd like to draw out to it, you know, is is that this is another reason, this passage is another reason why many, you might hear many Christians today say, the church needs to get back to the early days of Acts. And when people say this, they often refer to um, the passage in Acts 2 which describes the fellowship of the believers so it's stuff like you know meeting every day, uh, sharing the possessions, having a good reputation with outsiders, you know people being added to their number every day, there seem to be great unity in the church so you know it's the sort of thing that people feel they want to get back to the Acts church and of course another reason why it might be because people want to recapture the days of Acts of miracles there's so many different signs and wonders going on but have you noticed that human beings have a tendency to look at the past through rose-tinted spectacles. You know, I must be getting a bit old, right? But um, just recently when I went to church, uh, I went through the uh, the front door and I was just about to go in and I noticed that these pots that we'd planted, um, the fir- these fern trees had been ripped out. Vandals had um, pulled them out on the Saturday night before and they were thrown all over the place. And you know what I thought? I thought, oh, what's the world coming to today? And my second thought literally was kids today you know as if as if like when i was growing up you know in the 80s that there wasn't vandalism to be honest there was vandalism and i'm going to be honest with you now i was one of the people doing it i had a spray can yeah i was there you know so it's it's crazy to think you know back then it was completely fine and sometimes when you listen to people talk about the past they might say oh you know living in the 50s uh, you could leave your door open as if it was paradise well you know, you can't tell me there wasn't murder or prejudice or disease in those days. You know, let's be careful not to look at the past through rose-tinted spectacles. And when we say, let's get back to the church in Acts, I can't help but think that some sometimes when people say that, they have a bit of a rose-tinted view of what Acts actually was. I mean, for a start, we've got this picture of Acts, the church being loving and lovey-dovey type church, and you know, like a Disneyland of Christian love. Um... And all unified like a family, without without fallouts or politics and stuff like that. But you know, have a look in chapter fifteen, the the, the chapter just before sixteen, obviously. But the one that we're looking at now, Paul and Bar- Paul and Barnabas, they've had a disagreement uh, so sharp that they part company. You know, people arguing in church is not a modern phenomenon. You know, it was there an act among the greatest leaders? or there can be maybe an assumption that everything you read in acts is a miraculous event but you know i don't want to do down the the miracles in acts but like th- this earthquake in this passage we just read about like that could have just been a natural occurrence you know it's possible cuz the apostles weren't actually i don't think the apostles the apostles were praying to be set free cuz actually you will read on that when um, freedom gets offered they don't actually go you know, who knows? Maybe it's a miracle. I don't know. But the, I mean, the fact is, though, there are definitely miracles in the book of Acts. I mean, the fact that this woman, um, this python spirit gets cast out, it's an instant miracle. And amazing things are happening in the life of the church. But what happens is there's a tendency for us to make Acts into this paradise of church growth. So when we compare the church today and uh, uh, with, with the church of Acts, we have to say we're a million miles away from the church of Acts. Now, I, I accept that might be true in, in many ways, but it's a stereotype in others, because the Church of Acts was quite like us in many ways. But there is a danger, actually, with having this rose-tinted view of the early church, because we end up equating the Christian life with constant success, if that's the picture we have of Acts. Um, you know, we read this passage and we think, oh, great, he, Paul, he, pe- he prayed for someone and she was healed instantly. What does that mean? Well, therefore, if we pray, and we have the faith of Paul, that everyone will be um, healed instantly. That, that seems to forget the fact that if you just read a few verses on, that after Paul's miraculous healing of this woman, uh, exorcism of this woman, he gets stripped and beaten in public. And I wouldn't be surprised if Paul and Silas were praying for the beatings to stop, and it didn't, and they got chucked into prison. This is hardly the sign of success. Unfortunately, we can twist this whole idea um, where we can end up, like, we have churches preaching like a prosperity gospel that says, I can claim health and wealth, it's my right from God. i tell you what, that is a million miles away from what's going on in Acts, and it's a million miles away from what you see in Gethsemane. If we really read Acts, we'll see that in many ways the Christian life is actually equated not only with success, of course it's equated with amazing events, but it's equally are strongly connected with suffering. Of course we don't like that. We don't like the idea of suffering. We get this idea that suffering is a sign of weakness or, you know, that we, we must be in God's we must be out of God's will if we suffer. You know, we I think we've got a very weak theology of suffering. You know, one example you can see this is at work in in, in, in healing. I want to explore that for a second. Um, I want to be completely clear. Right, I I totally believe that God heals miraculously today. I've I've I know a friend. I've got a friend Mark um, from college who had a broken back, and no joke, he was healed in an instant. Right, in an instant, miraculously healed. I saw it. um, Unbelievable, brilliant stuff. But because we can end up with this rose-tinted view of Christian life compared with this paradise of acts that we have in our heads well we end up thinking that god will indeed heal every time so you have a situation where someone is ill at church and we start to pray for them in faith to be healed and quite right too you should you know if someone's ill pray for them for a miraculously miraculous full recovery go for it but no one dares see out loud what many people are thinking inside and it's that well what happens if this person isn't not only healed of this, but actually this person dies of this. You know, uh, Philip Yancey says that sometimes evangelicals can see unhealed people as an embarrassment or a token of failure. I mean, how do you think that makes them feel? And when the person doesn't get healed, well, that's when the blame game starts. It's, you know, it's because you don't have enough faith, they'll say. Or um, there's some sin in your life stopping you being healed. Nah, hang on a minute. W- was Paul beaten? Uh, here because of his lack of faith? Um, did he have a thorn in his flesh because he didn't trust God enough? Or did Jesus go to the cross because he didn't pray hard enough in Gethsemane? I don't think so. I've got a minister friend who's struggling with this in his church at the moment. He's got a young church member who's dying of a disease and there's a group in the church that is saying it's because of, of the lack of faith of the of the person and also the lack of faith of the pastor which is why this person's dying. And this is a, a triumphalist view of God that God always heals in every case that seems to it forgets one massive thing. And I don't want to upset you or anything. Um, and I hope this isn't a shock to you, but everybody dies. And even the person who was healed miraculously is going to die later. And the thing is, if I, I mean, if I personally ever get seriously ill, I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray for a miraculous, complete recovery. And I hope, um, you know, you would pray for me too and anyone else would pray for that. But at the same time, in one hand, I am praying for miraculous recovery. I've got to hold in the other hand this question. Is this the way that God might take me home to heaven? You see, Paul and Silas and the others in the church had the right attitude to suffering. They didn't see suffering as being alien to the Christian life, but they saw it as as a normal part of it. I mean, have you noticed that, that when you become a Christian, God doesn't make you immune to illness? I mean, I've had a cough now for three weeks. Um, I've, I've had more colds since being a, than since becoming a Christian, actually. You know, I think becoming a Christian made it worse. <laughs> I mean, my point is, and I know cold isn't very um, big on the suffering scale, but what I'm saying is suffering is, was a major part of the early Christian's life, and it's the same today. So when you face hardships and difficulties, don't think somehow you've slipped off the path of God. You know, this all might sound a bit depressing, this idea, I might be giving the impression to you that Christianity is all about just a life of pain. Well, no, it's about joy within the pain. You see, the message of this world, the message that you'll hear is basically, um, you can only be happy when what happens to you happens to be the right sort of happening. In other words, you know, happiness comes when life goes well. If you go for that philosophy, you're going to be in for a right shock because, you know, life doesn't particularly go as well as you'd hope. Paul and Silas, they found a happiness or a joy that wasn't dependent on circumstances. So that they could sing and they could pray through smashed up teeth and busted lips in a dark jail cell. And in one of his, letters, his later letters, Paul describes himself as being afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. He'd learned a completely different way of looking at the world. And it's a joy that doesn't remove difficulty. It's a joy that somehow can exist within difficulty. Just to close, um tell you a quick story um, from Charles Price, Um, he tells this good story about two photographs or paintings, I can't remember which but I'll just say photographs for now, Um, photographs that were entered into a competition and the subject was um, peace and one of the entries of the photo was a calm and serene lake, maybe in the lake district or something, and the setting sun hung in the sky, you know, the the grass was pure and green and the lake was still and beautiful, peace, you know, that was the name of the photograph. And that picture won second prize. And another picture was at the edge of a cliff by the sea and the sky was black and angry looking and the sea was raging and the waves looked terrifying. And amongst the rain and the wind there's this little cleft in the rock of the cliff and in the cleft sits a seagull sitting on its nest protecting its chicks and holding them together. And that photograph won first prize. So I agree let's be a church like the one in Acts but not in a superficial rose-tinted spectacle way let's look at the detail and actually be honest to say actually the book of Acts is not a Disney World paradise there's some difficulties in there but if we can be like that church of Acts then even in the darkest of prisons we can pray and we can sing because rest assured there are people out there like the prisoners listening my question is What are they hearing? Amen.